Well, hey, good morning. How we doing? How many of you like to travel? Okay, great. Um, grab your Bibles, turn to Luke 16. In the 9 o'clock service, I said, who likes the Bible has the, or who likes to travel has the Bibles were coming down the row. Everybody raised their hands. These guys were so confused. It was a mess. So I'm trying to do this in a little better order. But I, I know some of you like to travel. Who here doesn't like to travel? Okay, any, anybody in here who likes to travel, who's married to somebody who doesn't like to travel? Yeah, that's kind of funny how that happens, isn't it? So my wife is not a big fan of traveling. I think that's because we raised six kids. And when you take vacations with six kids, you need a vacation from the vacation. When you get back, I am somebody, my wife would tell you, that has to have a trip on the calendar if I'm going to be like happy. Like I want to know when that next trip is. So if I finish a trip, I want to know when the next one is so that I have something to look forward to. Anybody like that? Anybody take a good trip this summer? Anybody have a good vacation? Where'd you go? Where? Where is that? In Maine? Okay, so that's a good trip. How about anybody else? Who else went somewhere? Where'd you go? Sand Valley. There's a key word. What was the next word? Golf Resort. Okay, that's, that's obviously a very, very good trip. Um, I am about a week. Oh, somebody's got a hand up here. Where'd you go? To Alaska. Where'd you go in Alaska? Were you guys like on a cruise? Okay, so fantastic. They went to Alaska. That's the best. That's where I'm going. Not this week, but the week following. And I've been planning for this Alaska trip for months. Getting the tickets, getting all the gear together. I'm going with some people who haven't been there before, who haven't fished. So I've got to make sure that I've got the right rods and the right reels for when we get up there. We're fly fishing, so one day we'll fish for trout and one day we'll fish for salmon. And we kind of bounce back and forth. So I've been getting all the gear, making all the arrangements, checking in with the lodge. Now I'm close enough that I can see what the weather is. And it's been really warm this year in Alaska, so I'm trying to think how is that going to affect the fishing? Like, are the rivers going to be really shallow? And, and they say no, because actually it's been so hot that the ice caps are coming off the mountains and the rivers are deep, but I don't know if I really believe that. So I'm trying to figure out what's going on with the fishing. And, and I'm talking about it. I'm excited about it. Um, by the way, just curious, have you guys seen the small group leaders today? What color are their shirts? Oh, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, definitely. So, like, like, anything just triggers me into thinking about this Alaska trip. So, I've packed all my gear. I've got all of my clothes and I've got my waders and my boots and my felts and all the different layers and the T-shirts and the long T-shirts and the bug spray and the pliers that are on a necklace. There's nothing that makes me happier than when I'm wearing a necklace with pliers hanging off the end of them. And I'm, I'm just ready for the trip. Now... That's kind of a lot of luggage to cart, wouldn't you agree? Guess how long I'm going to be in Alaska? Eight days. Just eight days. All this planning, all this preparation, all of this packing, I'm so ready, I'm excited. Eight days. Now, contrast that. What if I were going to move up to Alaska for the rest of my life? Think that would take a lot more planning? Like, I don't think I'm exactly wired to survive like in the bush. Um, my wife on Sunday nights as we decompress from ministry, she likes to watch the show Alaska Bush People. By the way, it's raining outside if you weren't aware of that. <laughs> Dramatic, brr, Alaska Bush People. That's one of her favorite, 
shows. Now, listen, don't, don't judge her, okay? You, you can pray for her, don't judge her. Um, that is a show, she watches it with one of our daughter-in-laws, Morgan, they text back and forth. If you watch it and you sit very still and very quietly, you can actually feel your brain cells dying as you watch. <laughs> it, it's not the worst hour on TV, that would be The Bachelor, but, but it's, it's close, okay? And uh, I'm like, please, can you just put on a cooking show, anything, get me away from this. But, well, that would take a whole nother level of planning if I was going to go live up there full time. Like, how would I survive and what supplies would I need to bring and what can't I get when I'm up there and how do you get direct TV? Like, important stuff that I would need to survive. So, if that's eight days and it would be a lot longer if I was going to spend the rest of my life up there, here's a question. How about if it was for an eternity? If, if I knew that I was going on a, a trip for eternity, how much preparation would I put into a trip like that? Would I begin to become excited about the trip? Would I begin to talk about that trip? Would I allow that trip to be enough of a focus in my life that uh, when my mind drifted somewhere, it was drifting towards that trip. Now, this is what Jesus is addressing as we open our Bibles to Luke 16, as he begins to tell a simple story, a parable that is to communicate a profound truth. The big question this morning, or the, the big idea is this, am I, am I living like I'm leaving? Am I living like I'm leaving? And last week we looked at three parables from Luke 15, and those three parables actually just communicated the same profound truth, this idea that we have a God, we have a heavenly Father who um, has great joy and will go to incredible lengths to pursue and to find that which is lost. And we looked at the story of the uh, lost lamb and the shepherd who would leave the 99. We just heard Pam read about that verse just a couple minutes ago. And the love that God has when something that is lost has now been found. And it was followed by another short parable where there is a woman who loses a coin and she searches diligently until she finds it and then she rejoices with her neighbors. But we spent most of our time in the story of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son has been called by some the greatest short story ever written. Not just biblical text, but the greatest short story by guys like Charles Dickens and Ralph Waldo Emerson. Definitely one of the most treasured of the parables of the stories that Jesus told. Well, flowing out of those three stories, we move right into chapter 16 and we encounter our text today and we move from one of the most loved stories to one of the weirdest stories that Jesus ever teaches. And we're going to be in Luke 16 today to get a little bit of context of where we are. We have to go back to the start of chapter 15 because there's no break in between these parables. To understand the profound truth of Luke 16, we have to know who was in the audience who Jesus was talking to, what he was trying to communicate. And Luke 15 starts by saying that as Jesus spoke, the tax collectors and the sinners were coming to him. There was something about the message that Jesus was teaching that was attractive to people who were lost. And it also says that in that crowd there were scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they were grumbling at the fact that sinners were drawing near to Jesus. That's why Jesus gave three parables in a row of how incredibly important and joyful it is for God to find that which is lost. Coming out of those three stories, we move right into Luke 16. I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. Your first point today is quite simply plan your journey. 
plan your journey. It says in Luke 16, verse 1, and he also said to the disciples. So Luke 15 is addressed to a crowd. That crowd would have had his disciples, the tax collectors and sinners, the scribes and the Pharisees. But now he directs his attention directly to the followers, his followers, the disciples. And when Jesus talks to his followers, can we kind of push forward? He's talking to us, right? Followers of Jesus Christ. So in what follows in Luke 16, we are the direct audience. Now, the rest of that crowd is still there. We know that from what it says after the parable in verse 14. It says the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So the Pharisees are overhearing what Jesus is directly teaching to his disciples. But this instruction is for us. And he says this in verse 1. He said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man, this manager, was wasting his possessions. A couple things that were charges there. Actually, in the Greek, it's diabolo. Diabolo, it's where we get our word diabolical. So charges are brought um, that this man has been diabolical, that he has been wasting the, the rich man's possessions. That word um, wasted is the same word that we saw last week in the parable of the prodigal son where it says the prodigal son went to a far land and he wasted his inheritance. It means literally that he scattered it. He threw it to the wind. So a report comes to this rich man says, hey, the guy managing your money, he's wasting it. He's scattering it to the wind. And it says in verse 2, and this rich man called the manager and said to him, what is it that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you no longer can be manager and the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? Just, just a few things here. I, I got to believe he was caught off guard. Would you agree? Like, like he probably didn't wake up that day and knew that he was going to get fired. It seems like this report has gone to the rich man. He was most likely unaware. Um, have you ever been in the room? Don't raise your hand. But when you got fired? Like, like I don't mean this wrong. I've been in that room. I remember as a 17-year-old kid, I was hired in the summer in this um, government lab to mow the grass. It wasn't a complex, highly, you know, challenging job, but I drove a tractor and it had gang mowers behind it. It's just kind of like five spinning blades. And I was warned, don't drive fast when you get too close to the house. I didn't listen. And one day as I was taking a corner around a house, I took it a little too fast and my wheel rubbed against the aluminum siding on the house and it left a big black circle where the white siding was. And I was like, hey, seriously, be careful, don't do it. And I still didn't listen. And about a week or so later, as I went around the corner of a house, my wheel actually caught the corner of the aluminum siding and I peeled it off the side of the house. <laughs> didn't know I was going to do that that day. Just uh, a little bit of an absent-minded employee, but I got to hear those wonderful words you're fired. And, and he didn't seem to be prepared for this because he immediately is asking, what shall I do? Which means he didn't have a plan B. And sadly, we see this all the time. Um, last night after the service, one of the first people to come speak with me after the service, he's like, hey, are you fired up? The Detroit Lions are playing tonight. It's preseason. Like if you're excited about the Lions preseason game, you've got big issues, Okay. <laughs> That's not even football. All that is, is you are sorting through the bottom part of your roster 
trying to figure out who's going to make the team and who's not going to make the team. And that's really important, particularly if you're a fringe player. So in the preseason games, you see rookies and free agents that are trying to make the team, and you see veterans that are holding on, and we hear this all the time if you're a fan of sports or the NFL in particular. There will be a professional athlete who comes through the college ranks, and he's highly regarded, and he goes to the NFL, and he earns a big salary, but injury or better rookies or whatever come along, and he is accustomed to the lifestyle of an NFL player, and then he's cut, and he hasn't prepared for it, and he hasn't managed his finances so that he just lives like he's always going to be an NFL player. They, this manager didn't have a plan B. Maybe he forgot that he had to give an account. I don't know everything that's going through this manager's mind in this parable that Jesus is telling. I'm not that concerned, but I'm concerned that sometimes we make the same mistake, that we forget that everything that we have we are but stewards, we will give an account. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man once to die and after that comes judgment. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, I, I, I need to make this clear. When, when it says judgment, you, you understand if you've put your faith and trust, very, very dramatic again, this is a big moment. Um, <laughs> if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, when you stand in judgment, you understand it's not for your sin, Right? 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, we're not destined for wrath, but for obtaining righteousness through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we stand before a holy God guilty of sin, our sin is covered by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This future judgment is not a this is your life moment. Here's the good things and bad things that you did because the bad things have already been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We gotta be happy about that. But we are called and warned that we will give an account for the things that God has given to us to steward. That day is coming for all of us. We're going on a journey. We don't know the departure date. But for all of us, that journey is coming. In Psalm 139, we read, David writes, speaking of God, he says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. So what David is saying is, before I lived one day of my life, you had already numbered my days. The span of my life is set. It cannot be added to and it can be not be taken away from. Before I lived one day, you knew the sum of the days that I would live. That's incredible. I, I bet we got runners in here, right? Some of you run and you're eating a healthy diet and... <laughs> Maybe you're vegan or chewing on kale for snacks. I don't know what you all do. But, but you're very, very concerned about physical fitness. Do you understand? You can't add one day to your life. Slow down. Like, stop running. Order the loaded nachos. It's okay. I promise, all right? Our days are numbered. Now, all seriousness, i got to recover from that. Um, I think we have something to do with the quality of our lives. Would you agree? So there, there's reasons we have been given our bodies to stewards. You've got to be careful and think about what you eat and exercise and all of those things, but you're not adding to the span of your days. I promise you that. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 9, Again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. 
For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in a net, like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of men are snared. Our, our days are numbered. We will all face a moment where just like this manager, we will give an account to our master of how we steward, how we took care of what was entrusted to us. Please hear me. There is nothing that you have that God considers yours. Everything that you possess ultimately belongs to God. He has entrusted it to you to steward. And this goes beyond our physical possessions or our wealth or our money. It includes our intellect. It includes our time. It includes our, our job. Everything that has been given to us, everything that we would call our own, is not really ours. It's been entrusted to our care by our Heavenly Father. David in the Old Testament, he has a desire to build a temple for God. But God says, you're not going to be allowed to build the temple because you're a man with blood on your hands. You're a man of bloodshed. So he says, you can't build it, but I'm going to give your son Solomon the privilege to build it. So David, in anticipation of Solomon, his son, building the temple, before he dies, he takes an offering from the nation of Israel to gather the money and the materials that are going to be needed to build the temple. And as he gathers the materials and that offering is collected... We read this in 2 Chronicles 29, 12. David writes this against both riches and honors come from you, God, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But hear this, look at verse 14. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of all and of your own we have given you. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. All David is saying is everything we gave, it's yours to begin with. And though we understand that intellectually, the question is, do we live like that is true? This parable is going to confront us in the last couple of verses with how we handle our money, how we steward what God has entrusted to us. Does my actual spending reflect what I believe about God? Do I steward well what has been entrusted to me? About four years ago, Kristen and my lifestyle changed. We ended up selling a house that we had in Grand Haven and we spent about half our time up in Bightley, Michigan, which is near Baldwin, which is kind of the middle of nowhere too. But we have this wonderful house, way more than we deserve. And as we had the opportunity to buy it, we said, how can we steward this? How can we share this blessing? So we constantly have scheduled where we tend to be up there early in the week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, have a condo down in town. And then what we do the rest of the week is we kind of let groups use that. So different pastors and different churches and different youth groups and small groups. I think Seth Main's small group was up there last week and there's a small group up there this week. And they're using it when we're not there because we want to be very generous with the things that God has entrusted to us. When we bought the house, the man that sold it to us, sold it, not just the house, but all the furniture and possessions and a thing that was in the garage was he had three um, razors. Do you guys know what razors are? They're like, like dune buggies that are really fun to ride in the sand. But I, the house isn't in the sand, it's in the woods. And the difference between riding a razor in the sand and in the woods is trees. <laughs> and as we have allowed different people to use the razors in the four years we've owned the three razors, we've built them, rebuilt them, 
because people, for some unknown reason, like to run them into trees. <laughs> some of you are in this room. And uh, <laughs> nine times we've had to strip these things down to the frame to rebuild them. So one of them has ran into so many trees, it's getting pretty... Um, difficult to ride. It's a little shaky. So we went out and bought a, a fourth razor and a couple weeks ago we had a man up who's been up to our house several different times and uh, in three previous visits he's wrecked three different razors. So, so this visit um, he sees the three razors and he sees the new one and he um, takes out the new one and when I say new, when he took it out it had I think 12 miles on the odometer when we towed it back in, less than half an hour later, there are things I'd sometimes like to ask. Like, you don't own it. Like, you've got to think before you drive. And, and, and to be honest, I'm a little frustrated. I love the guy. I don't want to tell him, no, you can't use the razors, but four? Like, are you for real? There might be a greater idiot in the story. You guys realize that, right? It, it might be the guy that continues to let the guy who crashes the razor drive the razor. Like, that guy might be the greater idiot. Why would I do that? Because it's a constant reminder to me that even I don't own the razors. And one of the reasons we got this was so that people could go out and enjoy themselves on it. Why they enjoy running into trees is beyond me. So for now he can still ride the razors. I might rethink that. Don't hold me to it. Everything we have, everything that we possess is not our own. This man is caught off guard. He is no longer manager. Look at verse 3. I am not strong enough to dig. I am too ashamed to beg. This guy is so white collar. I'm going to assume that he's lived a pretty good lifestyle. He's not used to physical labor. He's got his tailored suits and his manicured fingernails. And he's just gotten fired because he wasn't a good steward. Poor stewardship always leads to desperate times. Would you agree? And he's asking, what am I going to do? How am I going to take care of myself? We don't know if he has a family. Maybe he has other dependents, but he is definitely in a bind. Now note, as he gets fired, this is not you're fired, you're gone. Technically what the text says, if you look ahead, look at verse 4. It says, the manager says, he makes a decision. He goes, I've decided what I need to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he's in this weird situation where he's been fired, but he's told to get his stuff in order and then leave. So he's living in the in-between, knowing that he's going to get fired, but he's still managing for a short season. That's right where we are. You understand that, right? We, we know that we're going to be called to give an account, his stewards, of how we've done with the things that God has entrusted with us. And we've been given a short period of time to get our affairs in order in preparation for this coming review. Now, I don't want to go too morbid here. I need to crack a lightning. Should I wait? No, I'll just go. All of us are terminally ill. You know that, right? In a sense, all of us are terminally ill. Some of us just don't have the sense to live in light of that reality. And, and we're in a season that God has given us to say, be careful how you steward. You're going to have to give an account. Here's a second point. Verse 4, pack what is needed. Pack what is needed. 
I have decided what to do, this manager says in verse 4, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. Now, just so you understand, a hundred measures of oil, it's estimated that that could be pressed out of 150 olive trees. It's basically this man owes a significant amount of debt, probably in the neighborhood of today, $150,000. And the servant says to this man, if you owe 100 measures of oil or $150,000, take your bill, sit down quickly and write it down to 50 measures of oil, 75,000. He just on the spot forgave 75,000 worth of debt. Says to another... How much do you owe? He says, 100 measures of wheat. 100 measures of wheat is estimated to be worth about $500,000 in today's money, about 10 years of uh, salary. And the guy says, write it down to 80. In a blink of an eye, in the stroke of a pen, his debt is reduced to $100,000. And this is just an example. The text is using these two stories as illustrations of many debtors that owed money. And he goes to each of them and he says, write down the debt. Now, Now, there's a word for this. It's thievery. He is stealing from his master. Not, let's not sugarcoat this. It's shady. It's janky what this guy's doing. And as he reduces the debt, what he is trying to accomplish is he is taking resources that are not his own and he is using those resources to secure his future. In essence, it is his plan, it is his hope that by reducing the debt that is owed to the master, that later on when he's no longer manager, he can go to these people who he gave the discount to and say, hey, remember when I forgave $100,000 of your debt? Remember when I forgave $75,000 of, of your debt? How about I live with you for a while? That's what he's doing. It's interesting what we read next. I can't imagine that the disciples were ready for what Jesus says next. He says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Why would the manager do that? I mean, why would the rich man commend the manager that was stealing from him? Listen, the, the profound truth of this simple story is not go rip off your employer, I promise. That's not it. But, but what's happening here is the, the rich man is looking at what the manager did to secure his future with wealth that wasn't his own. And in a sense, though he doesn't like it, he says, well done. When I was starting um, my real estate career, maybe 25 years ago in Chicago, I did my first big transaction in Chicago. We bought a hotel and the hotel had a restaurant and we closed the hotel and restaurant and we renovated it for about 15 months and, and then reopened. And uh, before we even finalized the deal, Crane's business ran a front page article that um, I was coming in as a developer to redevelop this half city block. And the interesting thing was nobody knew me. This was my first deal, but I was partnering with a very, very well known developer. We're going to call him Joe because that was his name. Okay. And, and so Joe and I were doing this deal, but because I was unknown and he was well known, the deal just became known as Joe's deal. The problem was by the time we had to fund the renovations, he didn't put his money in, so he was no longer in the deal, and when the hotel opened, he had no part of the transaction, but Joe never told anybody that he wasn't in the deal, because he liked to brag about it, which is so annoying when somebody else takes credit for your work, would you agree? 
So I'd go be talking to somebody and say, yeah, I'm working on this. He goes, oh, that's Joe's deal. Uh, no, that's, uh, I did that for the Van Campen family. That's their investment. And I'd go talk to a lender. He's like, so I, you're borrowing money on this? I thought that was Joe's deal. No, that's not Joe's deal. That's my deal. About four or six months after the restaurant reopened, I'm sitting having lunch. I've, I've eaten there several times. I'm not making a big deal about who I am, but another partner in the transaction saw me there, and he grabbed the main chef and the general manager of the restaurant and introduced me to them and said, hey, this is David. He represents the Van Campen Group. They own the hotel. And my general manager goes, I thought Joe owned the hotel. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's a common misconception, uh, but that's not the case. Joe has no part in the deal. And the chef was like, huh. And I'm like, why huh? And he goes, he eats here like five times a week. I'm like, does, does he pay? <laughs> he goes, no. Have you been keeping a tab? No, he told me not to worry about it. Does he eat alone? No. <laughs> Sometimes he brings friends. Well done, Joe. <laughs> I wasn't pleased with what he did, but I had to at least observe the ingenuity of it. He was making friends. He was enjoying meals based off something that wasn't his. The rich man commends the manager. Then look what it says next. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. That one had to sting the disciples. In essence, what Jesus is teaching here is he says, listen, nothing that you have is yours. Everything that you have is entrusted to your care. You are nothing more than a steward. And an unrighteous steward had enough sense to take what wasn't his and use it to guarantee and secure his future. I wish my disciples would do the same. The things that have been entrusted to us, we should look at them and say, how are we using these for the kingdom of God? And by definition, that's more than just being generous. That's saying, I want to invest my money in a way that when I get to heaven, there will be others there in heaven who welcome me because it was through my generosity that the gospel was spread. Listen, one of the most um, phenomenal things that I've been able to witness and experience since we've planted this church is we were, honestly, we were given a gift from God when we got this facility, the way that we inherited this facility. It, it came to us for Nearly nothing. We renovated it, but to replicate this facility would have been impossible for us to do. This was a blessing from God. And in response to that blessing, when we had the opportunity in North Muskegon, we took hundreds of thousands of dollars that you guys had given in offerings, and we blessed them with it so that they could start with a building that they owned without debt. And then, as God often does... He gave us a building in Grand Haven that we didn't deserve, that we weren't even looking for at that time. And we got 19 acres and 60,000 square feet for $2 million that we haven't even paid yet. We close on that in a month. And in response to that generosity, Eric 
was called to Fremont, and we made sure that they went out with enough funds and resources and even more than money, he took some of our best people with him. Man, it hurt. But through the generosity of your giving, I believe not only in Fremont and North Muskegon, but in Lomuru, Kenya, in Busia, Kenya, and other places where we've raised money for Nepal, we'll meet people in heaven that say, because of your generosity, I heard the gospel and I was saved and I'm so thankful for what you did. And by the way, that's not praise to us. All we're doing is reflecting the very generosity that's been shown to us that God Almighty, because of his love for finding that which was lost, was willing to send his son from heaven that he would leave the throne of heaven and come down and give us grace and mercy that was absolutely undeserved. All we're doing is reflecting what Christ did for us anyways. Am I missing something? And what God is saying, what Jesus is teaching in this parable, is he says, make sure that you're using what isn't yours, which you were given to steward for eternal purposes. And, and just so we're clear, we have no capital campaign going on right now. There's going to be no offering pass at the end of the service. I don't want there to be any confusion as to motive. Okay? But he's serious. Let me give you a third point. Bring the right currency. Look at verse 9. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. This story just keeps getting weirder. Like I can't even picture those words coming out of Jesus' mouth until I do a little bit more study on them to understand what he's saying. He's saying, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. Don't use your wealth to buy off your friends. That's not what he's communicating. That word unrighteous could also be translated untrue. The wealth that you have is untrue. Why is the wealth that I have untrue? Because it's not mine. Here's another reason why it's untrue. Note what it says next. It says, so that when it fails, not if it fails, when it fails. See, that's the problem with earthly wealth. It always fails. Let me give you three ways that it fails, okay? It disappears. Have you ever noticed that about money? An incredible ability to vanish. It was 1989 when I went to work for the Van Campen Group. And in the beginning of 1989, we were sitting pretty, but by the end of 1989, a real estate investment that we were in had gone south. There was a crisis in the real estate markets, and we found ourselves on the verge of bankruptcy. It would take us four years to battle our way through that process. Ten years later, in 1999, my father-in-law passed away. Now, I was put in charge of everything, and at the beginning of 2000, there was a tech bubble in the stock market that put me back meeting with bankruptcy lawyers. And then ten years later, in 2009, after a real estate market that crashed and liquidity problems, again, I was reminded of how quickly money could vanish. So like 89, 99, 2009, I am so looking forward to this fall. I'm starting to see a pattern, like I, I hope not, but sometimes we've got to be reminded that money disappears. Here, here's another reason, way that money fails us. It doesn't give us what we think that it will provide. It doesn't satisfy. That's the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is the writer. He's the richest man of his generation, and he is spending money like water on everything that he believes will fill the void, the eternal longing in his soul. And he's buying possessions, and he's 
accumulating wives and he's building palaces and he's working and he's pursuing pleasure and wisdom. And he comes to the end of it, he says, it's all vanity. Money fails. And then the third way that I see that money fails is just this. It, it stays at the border. You, you, you can't bring it with you. It's just so that when it fails, hear this, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Not God will receive you into eternal dwellings, that they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Listen, I don't know everything about how we interact in heaven. Some of that I just don't understand. It's not clear to me. But I've got to believe that when we get to our eternal destination, there is some remembrance without the encumbrance of sin about who we are and the relationships that we had while we were alive. Otherwise, this verse doesn't make much sense. So can we just, like, just honesty in church for a minute, can we agree that there's some people that we really, really like to hang out with and there's some other people that we really, really don't like to hang out with as much? Okay, when you get to heaven, that will be gone. You're not going to be sitting there for all of eternity going, I can't believe that guy's my neighbor. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> like, that's not how relationships will work but there seems to be some remembrance of who we were and how we stewarded what God entrusted to us, that they will receive you into eternal dwellings. First Corinthians says, hey, listen, there's three things that endure forever, faith, hope, and love. One of those will be the choices that we made to express love and generosity in this lifetime. The text goes on and says, in verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. I think that's fairly clear on its own. If you're a bad manager, if you're a lazy manager with $20,000 a year, you will be the same person you are now when you have 200000 a year to manage or $2 million or whatever. How you steward what God has entrusted to you matters at any level. It says in verse 11, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? It tells us in 1 Timothy 6, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. If you're rich, don't be proud or set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Listen to what 19 says. Thus storing up treasure for themselves has a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I get asked quite frequently, hey, do you know any good investment? I've got, some, I've got a 401k, I've got some, something to, that I need to invest. Where, where should I go? I don't know anything. Interest rates are next to zero. That doesn't seem to work. The stock market seems way too high. I have no idea where you should go with your money. But I got some really good ideas on where you should be investing for an eternal journey, and that's into the kingdom of God. Last point. Plan your journey. Pack what is needed. Bring the right currency. Don't miss the flight. Verse 13, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He, he's drilling down on how we handle our wealth. 
Jesus is talking about heaven and hell. Don't miss this. He's talking about your eternal future. If you need proof of that, just go down a little further into verse 16. And Jesus is not going to tell the story. He's going to tell the, I mean a parable. He's going to tell a real story about two men, a rich man and Lazarus who find themselves in eternity. And the rich man has not made preparation. And he finds himself in torment. And he tells Abraham, he says, send somebody to warn my brothers. And Abraham says, you don't need any more warning than what you already had. You had Moses and the prophets. God's warning us, you will give an account. Eternity is at stake. Quite honestly, as a church, we need to talk more about heaven and hell because it's real. And the reality that he's pointing to here is if Moses, the law, and the prophets were ample warning for the rich man in Luke 16, we have the cross. How much more do you need to see to understand that we have to be ready? And one of the ways that reveals our heart is how we handle our money. So before the 9 o'clock service, I was just a couple minutes from coming out. And and I looked on the counter and and there was a wallet there. So I took it. And um, it was uh, Taylor Bacon. He led us in worship. It was his wallet. And and at the 9 o'clock service, he had a total of $1.00 in his wallet. Now, after the 9 o'clock service, Paul Kite, one of the guys that was there, he gave me a dollar, said, put that in his, so now that he has two. (laughs) So I think we can get him up to four. No, I'm just teasing. We're not raising money for Taylor at this moment. But here was the interesting thing about Taylor's wallet. On the outside of it, it says gospel moves. You might remember that. We went through a series a few years ago when we were talking about acts that we called gospel moves. And on his wallet, he's put a sticker Gospel moves. Why would he do that? To remind himself that everything in the wallet doesn't belong to him. Let me close with this. Let me give you three reminders or three ways that may be helpful for us to keep the fact that eternity awaits in the forefront of our minds. I would encourage you, as simple as this sounds, to create in your life some eternal reminders Maybe it's a screensaver. Maybe it's a verse that you have on your mirror or on the visor of your car that you're go- or on your fridge that you're going to see every day that reminds you that this life is but taxing to a runway to the journey of eternity. We, we need to be excited. We need to be talking about the fact that we're all destined to go on a journey. Maybe it's a tattoo. Sorry, moms. Whatever it is that you need to remind you of the fact that this life isn't all that there is. Here's the second thing. Get in the practice of denying yourself something that you want now. It says in Matthew 16, if anyone should come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Sometimes it's just good to deny yourself things in this life, to build an appetite for eternity which is to come. And then finally, I would just say this, don't lose heart. One of the things that's been cool is we get to, as a staff, 
read your prayer requests every week. I get by, usually by the end of Monday night, I've got a full list of everything you all have written, every prayer request, every comment, whoever unanimous or uh, anonymous is, like you're saying some mean things. If you could stop that, I'm just teasing. But we read them all. And then we get a hit list on Tuesday of things that we must get to that week as pastors. And what's happened that's interesting is in the last couple of weeks, I've been getting this on my desk. It's simply a program, a computer program that they run the prayer list through, and it creates a prayer cloud. And it highlights the different words that are kind of repeated in the prayer request. And it's interesting. It changes the font changes it's a bigger font for the things that are more often requested and it can be physical healing or god's provision or addiction or depression or so many things man that can make us lose hope and lose heart and as followers of jesus christ in this broken world sometimes we begin to think that hey uh, this journey isn't all that great and there's a lot of things that weigh us down and can cause us to lose hope listen to what it says in second corinthians 4 verse 16 says this, so we do not lose heart. Though our nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all, compa- beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're, they're fading away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. It's my prayer that we focus on that more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this reminder. And Father, I would ask that um, you would search our hearts. Point out idols and, and, and things that we value more than you. Father, remind us that we are stewards, entrusted, not owners, just stewards. Father, our prayer would be that at the end of the day, as we stand before you, we would hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And Father, we acknowledge right now the thing that we have been entrusted with the most is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And any good and any praise and any merit that we could ever receive is only in response to the grace that's been bestowed on us. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for your generosity towards us. Thank you for the cross. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray.